so much, Pastor Ferguson. I really like him. I really do. And pray for him regularly. And uh, now let's all, all of us, find the book of James. Can you do that? And it's going to be a very, very uh, helpful lesson this morning, I think. Something we're going to actually learn that we can take from here on. And I always regard Sunday school. I take it very seriously. I was pastor for 34 years at the Junietta Baptist Church up there in the Thumb. And then uh, almost 10 years ago now, I uh, left the pastorate and began traveling for the cause of revival. My wife and I felt that that was what God was leading us to do in this chapter of our life, which we assume is a long chapter, uh, but we will see. It's been 10 years now, just about, and uh, we're praising the Lord. And as Pastor mentioned, we've been at Trinity Flushing before for a wonderful week. We knew this church and your former pastor for many years and thought very much of you. First time I ever walked on the property was when I was asked to come for the revival campaign and uh, have many good thoughts and feelings and pray for you regularly. Uh, But I'm here for a particular reason today. Now I take Sunday school seriously, so I'm going to need maybe some help. I may be asking some of you to read something. In other words, school, I'm the teacher, you're the pupils. Okay, so Sit up and pay attention. Okay, will you do that? Now, I'm going to need volunteers. I'm not a mean teacher. I'm a nice teacher. I don't make people read who don't like to read. But I'll look for somebody who uh, can read the English language acceptably, and you're not scared to read in front of these people. Take volunteers. Then I'm going to need a couple of volunteers to hand something out. That's going to be going on pretty soon, and this will be an important hour in the beginning of a very important day, which I'll unfold with you in just a few moments. Chapter 5, James chapter 5. Book of James is about revival, and it has a lot to say about prayer. Those three themes Pastor mentioned today are without a doubt connected. Prayer, fasting, revival. We're really going to be talking about praying and fasting for revival. Revival comes in answer to prayer. And many times, serious, effective prayer is accompanied by fasting, doing without food. There's a reason for us to be talking about this today. The Lord has put us together, and I'm glad for you to hear what we're going to read right now. Chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias, that's the New Testament way to spell Elijah, that's Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Now, there's a sense in which the reason I come today is because of something that's been happening in our state. I became aware of it maybe a year and a half ago. Right, and what was that? A growing hunger and thirst 
among Baptist preachers for revival. Something that's unusual. I travel the whole country. I'm going to tell you, it is not common to find a pastor who's desperate for revival, who longs to see a touch from the true God in his ministry and in his church that isn't common. It ought to be, but it isn't common. And I discovered that many of the pastors I know in our state had this kind of hunger and thirst. Now, I'm boiling things down, but I eventually called for a meeting uh, with pastors like this. It took place in Marysville, Michigan, which is over by Port Huron, last June. At that time, we talked about the subject of the spiritual condition of the churches in our state. And then the second subject was, is there anything we can do about it? The product was plans for what we're calling the Michigan Revival Conference. Now, the Michigan Revival Conference is a product of the revival movement among the pastors of our state. Not every pastor, but others are being touched pretty well every month. New pastors coming under this burden for revival. And uh, so, and we've met several times. We met in Clio, which isn't far from here. At that meeting, it was a larger group of pastors, and the Spirit of God moved, and we enlarged our plans, changed our plans, felt that Jesus was leading us. Then we had a meeting in Corona, a much larger group. I, as kind of a, uh, the leg man for the Michigan Revival Conference, felt like the meetings were all pragmatic. I'm not used to that in a critical way, but I called for the meetings to get some more ideas, to ask viewpoints, or you prayed about it, what do you think we should do about this? But you know, at the Corona meeting, a man in the back there raised his hand and he said, what, where, what do we have in our next meeting? I said, do you fellows want to meet again? And there has been something in the meetings of the spirit of revival and talking about revival and going to Bible promises about revival that has been very refreshing and helpful to the preachers. And most of the meetings we've gone to our knees and prayed for revival in our state. So we had another one in Bridgeport. And I know some, were you there? No, your assistant pastor was there in Bridgeport. An exceptionally large number of pastors was there. And uh, <clears throat> we went to the auditorium after our meeting got down on our knees after a little talk and uh, began to pray for revival. Now, for one of the first obvious things I saw was uh, the um, amazing fact about who was there. We had pastors there. Now, maybe you don't know this. There isn't really a lot of animosity in our state, but there is a lot of division. There are Baptist pastors who disagree with other Baptist pastors. How many of you would say, I think I know that? And it was amazing who was in the auditorium. There were men who probably have never been in the same room before. We all know each other. We were on our face. There was a man also on the front row that I had the impression had an opinion contrary to revival. Did you know you can be theologically persuaded that revival shouldn't happen or can't happen or you shouldn't pray for it? I had the impression that he'd been... Uh, influenced by people in our state who had that point of view. And there he was on the front row, crying out to God in desperation for revival in their church. It was phenomenal. Matter of fact, 
There was another meeting up north <coughs> near Alanson. Do any of you know where Alanson is? Okay, we're up there by Burt Lake. There was another meeting up there. I was nearby, asked to be there. They let me preach about revival. And uh, the pastor of that church who was hosting that fellowship meeting said publicly that I was down there at Bridgeport, and, he, and he's a kind of a jokester. He said, maybe I live kind of a dull life, but I'm going to tell you, the prayer meeting in the auditorium at Bridgeport was one of the top three spiritual experiences of my entire life. And God is on the move. And our church, talk about Trinity, Pastor Ferguson, is definitely involved. And I want to recruit all of you to be involved in some way. We're going to organize a conference choir. My son, John Flanders, is going to be the choir director, made up of singers and choirs from all over the state. Uh, we're going to actually look for people who will help us with um, uh, ushering and nursery. We're going to look for people who will help us with housing for pastors who come in. We found out early on some of the pastors, the most needy about the Michigan Revival Conference, are really intimidated by the housing. That is, they can't afford a motel. And so we've been working on that. There's another church not far from here that told me they're going to actually sponsor motel rooms. And also, we got a good deal at an RV park. They're going to put RVs on there and let pastors stay for the four days there. Sounds like a good idea. Maybe you'll come up with creative ideas for housing. <clears throat> we would like you to be involved. And then also, we'd like you to be involved in prayer. And I'm not talking about prayer for the conference, but prayer for revival. Revival at our church. Revival in all the churches in the state of Michigan. Although, we ought to be praying for revival among God's people all over the world. Yeah. And, and then also for this conference. And you know, some of the churches have announced that they're going to set aside one day a month this year as a day of fasting and prayer for revival. And I'd like you to consider doing that. And I'd like you to come all day long. That is Sunday school. How many have ever been to Sunday school at Trinity before? Okay, congratulations, you just made it. The morning service, stay on. I know what the preacher's going to preach because I'm the preacher. Then come back tonight, and I'm going to tell you, I will especially explain tonight about fasting and prayer, why it makes prayer more effective. And uh, some of you have experience with it. Some of us have never even heard of it. So you be back tonight, even if you usually don't come back on a Sunday night, okay? Well, right now, let's pray. Dear Lord, this is a more than just Sunday school in a way. This is a very important meeting. We have our Bibles open. We need you to teach us, Holy Spirit, from your word. We need, Lord, to have a real turn in the road about our prayers. Oh, Lord, may our prayers be effective like Elijah's. May our prayers bring revival. Lord, send revival. Send revival to our lives and to our congregations, and this one especially. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now let's volunteer time, okay? Y'all ready to volunteer? First of all, let me see if I have some volunteers to hand out this card. This card has the information on it about the Michigan Revival Conference. 
I'd like every family if possible uh, to take one home, put it up somewhere so you could be praying for the conference and remembering to pray for revival. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, this was put together by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Corona. So do I have some guys who are pretty swift of foot and uh, awake enough to be able, okay, come on down. Let's have three or four of you, maybe. Big crowd for Sunday school. Just take a stack and raise your hand if you'd like one while I'm talking about something else. Okay? Uh, if you would like one, if you're just going to take it home and throw it in the trash, don't take it home. But if you will uh, pray for the Michigan Revival Conference, you'd like to have one of these, raise your hand and we'll hand them out until they're gone. That'll be That'll be just great. The Michigan Revival Conference will be for three purposes. We've got four speakers that'll be the main speakers, be daytime meetings, nighttime meetings. One reason is persuasion. Persuasion, what do I mean by that? A revival conference, there have been revival conferences since the uh, 1600s. The reason is the truth that brings revival is often forgotten by God's people and gets to the background. We become cold and dead and lifeless and ineffective in every way. Okay, Those truths need to be revived, <laughs> revival truths. And we have men coming who know them and who see revival. I'm talking about evangelist Dave Young and then evangelist Jim Van Gelderen and then Pastor R.B. Willett and myself are going to be the four main speakers. The meetings in this area are going to be at First Baptist of Bridgeport, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. And then Sunday, and of course you'll have services here, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in the daytime at Landmark Baptist in Clio. So that's where they will be, and it'll be for persuasion, where we'll, we will learn some things. Second thing is purging. Now, we come together and have a conference on revival where we're saying by our attendance we're longing for revival in our state and in our churches if we come together uh, in that way and will not come to God and deal with our sins we are ultimate hypocrites you know there are word on our lips oh we want revival but we won't turn from our sins I hope that the process of getting ready for the conference will bring revival to many lives and many churches. I really do. But when we get there, folks, we're going to deal with our sins. Purging, persuasion, purging, and prayer. We're going to have prayer meetings. Call out to God as men and women of old have done in the past and seen God respond to the prayer, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Okay? So join with us in heart and also in our activity between now and June. And let's see God at work. And God is at work. Already he's at work. These things are not because we came up with an idea. These things are because God is moving in the hearts of his servants right now. Now, prayer comes. I mean, revival comes in answer to prayer. One of the great examples of that truth is the prophet Elijah, who was a revivalist. Now, we just read of promise, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Effectual means effective. Now, I think probably everybody here prays, at least in an emergency. Some of us pray out of habit or commitment every day. 
Some of us pray more than just a few minutes a day. But the question is, are our prayers effective? In the Bible, we're taught to expect something when we pray. See, ye have not because, see, Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. And then he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give good things to them that ask him? See, he says, if a, a son asked his father for bread, would he give him a stone? And in those places in the Bible, the Lord Jesus was saying, among other things, you can expect to get exactly what you ask for. And a lot of preaching and a lot of our own discouragement has led us to believe that prayer is a good activity and it makes us feel better, keeps us close to God, but you can't expect much. Do you know we're not seeing much because people are not praying effectively? And James 5 tells you exactly how to pray effectively. And there are people who came to Sunday school this morning, Pastor Ferguson, who have a problem, a burden, have somebody or something that really needs divine intervention. And it's heavy on your heart. And the fact is, if you could pray, you know what you would pray for. But if you could pray and actually have the thing you asked for happen, it would be the biggest thing in the world So we're not just talking about for revival. We're talking about effective praying in a passage that tells us how to have that without a doubt. Now, notice in verse 17, I'm going to get into my points real quickly. It points out Elijah was just like you and me. Now, I went to Bob Jones University. They have a famous art gallery. And a lot of the paintings there have to do with biblical scenes. Many times the great people of the Bible are depicted there with halos. Halos. Did you know they didn't have halos? Did you know if you uh, ran right into St. Paul or Elijah or Moses, you'd probably be disappointed? I bet you Moses didn't look like he's depicted by Cecil B. DeMille. Who knows? Maybe he didn't even have a beard. Wouldn't that be shocking? See, they were ordinary people. They were ordinary. And it points that out. Says Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. That means he dealt with his flesh. Who knew? But it says, and he prayed. Stopped the rain and brought a revival. See, there's a way to be effective in our prayers. So you may want to write these down, okay? Here's what they are. They're right here. They're not just a preacher's outline. Effective praying comes with these kind of prayers. Number one, righteous prayers. Verse 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It makes a difference who is doing the praying. Now many of you know that we are not saved by our own righteousness. The righteousness that gets us to heaven is the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of God in Christ imputed unto us. You won't get to heaven by doing something or by promising to do something or not to do something. You'll get to heaven not by something you do. You'll get to heaven only by something God did for you. And Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead is the only thing that'll make someone righteous in the sight of God. And you know what? You've got to be righteous in the sight of God to have your prayers answered. 
You've got to be saved to have your prayers answered. When you receive Jesus Christ, you become a son of God and he becomes your father. And he gives you the spirit of adoption, crying, Abba, Father. You can expect things when you're a child of God. But if you're not yet a child of God, this is another reason to get saved. (laughs) See, another reason to get saved. To have the ruler of the universe be your father who's willing to help you out when you need help. But it's obvious here, we're not just talking about being saved. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man doesn't just mean that he's righteous in the sight of God. It means that he's right with God. And it tells us, confess your faults one to another and pray for one of another that you may be healed. Starting back in verse 14, I'm not going to take the time to read this. We find that the scenario is praying for a sick person. Matter of fact, a very sick person. Earlier it says, is any afflicted among you, let him pray. Now, if you wake up with a headache or you've got sinus trouble or something like that, go ahead and pray about it. But then it says, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them anoint him with oil in the name of the, of, of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, that's talking about somebody who uh, is bedridden. <laughs> let him call for the elders of the church. He didn't go to church today. And asked for prayer. He had to stay home because he was too sick. And the elders of the church came and prayed over him. And the Bible says that if God gives them faith, that'll mean healing. You know what this is? A matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. If you read the whole passage, the Bible says, here comes the leaders of the church. Here's the sick man. Their family speaks to the Pastors and says, here's why we think God may want to heal our dad or our, my wife. Here's what we think. And we're commanded in James 5 to call for you and have the church through you pray for him. And if God will give us faith, we can expect a healing. Well, in that passage of scripture, go home and read it today. It tells you, first of all, confess your sin. Not just this verse, confess your faults one to another. But it says to check out the sick person to see if maybe the reason they're sick is their sins. Did you know sometimes people are sick because of their sins? Not always. Just because I'm sick doesn't mean I've sinned. But the Lord Jesus Christ healed a man and said, Sin no more lest a worse thing come unto you. John chapter 5. So we need to check that out first. Now, Lord, are you trying to get my attention so I'll get right with you about a sin? And you know what? The leaders of the church are to ask the sick person. And you know what? The anointing with oil in the Old Testament was a ritual that indicated the person was going into the service of the Lord. They anointed prophets, priests, and kings. Juniata Baptist Church, we would follow James 5. We have some remarkable stories about James 5 miracles that we saw in our Baptist church. But uh, I would always say, what we're doing is we're coming to God and saying, God, if you restore my health, I will spend this period of my life serving you. And I want an anointing for a new, a renewed period of service. And that includes getting right about your sins. Confess your faults one to another would mean this. 
the men in the room who are going to pray over him, uh, they need to be right with God and man to get their sins, to get their prayers answered. And I remember being in a hospital once where someone was very ill and we looked at each other and I said, one thing we're supposed to do is let's make sure we're right with God and right with man. Do any of us have any sins we need to confess before we pray for this person who is so sick? And I remember, I'll never forget it. Someone over here looked at someone over here on the two sides of the hospital bed and said, I've got to ask you to forgive me for what I did to you. We saw people getting right with each other in a hospital room so that we could pray. May I say effective prayer is always righteous prayer. And you know what? If you're not a Christian, he's not even your father, you can't expect it. But you know what? If you are a Christian and you have an issue between you and your father, you can't expect God to respond until you respond to his voice and confess your sins. And then one another. The word confess means to say the same thing. When I confess my sins to God, I'm not telling him about something he doesn't know. If I say, dear Lord, I lied or I blew my stack or I used a bad word. If I tell God that, he doesn't go, you did. Confession is agreeing with God. Saying, you know what? God, you've been telling me this was wrong. I've been justifying it. But I'm wrong. You're right. When we agree with God about our sins, against our sins, we're forgiven. And the same thing with one another. To whom should I confess my sins? People who already know about it. Yeah, maybe somebody you sinned against. You don't have to spill your guts and tell everybody everything you ever did. But you certainly need to get right with people if you've sinned against people. Did you know that? Don't you remember when the Lord taught us to pray with the Lord's Prayer? He said, if you won't forgive your brother, I won't forgive you. We can't expect anything unless we're right with God and man. So effective prayer is righteous prayer. What does that bring to mind? I'm talking about right now. What does that bring to mind in Sunday school? What issue between God and you or you and another person? needs to be settled before your prayer will be answered. Now, let me go over the others quickly. I took a while on that. Second, it should be informed prayer. Verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man, uh, subject to like passions as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now, Elijah was one of God's people. God's people in the Old Testament were Israelites. And they had a king. At the time of Elijah, he was a bad king. Who can tell me the name of the king who reigned over Israel when Elijah lived? And his wife's name was, tells you the story. He led the country to worship false gods, Baal. Okay. Now, Elijah was nobody. Nobody ever heard of Elijah. You know, people call him a prophet. We don't have any record of him ever preaching a sermon. Everything that Elijah did, he did by praying. Check me out on that. But he was a nobody in a little town called Tishbe, who showed up out of nowhere at the palace and said this, uh, As the Lord God lives before whom I stand, it won't rain until I say. Then he walked out the door. So I'm sure that there was laughter or joking around about that weird-looking guy. 
Who on earth was that, King Ahab? Then it didn't rain for a month. Then it didn't rain for six months. Then it hadn't rained for almost a year, and now they were out looking for him. See, now, Elijah had the idea, if God would stop the rain, it would destroy the crops, it would bring us economic disaster and actually hunger and thirst. If God turned off the rain, I think that would bring God's people to their knees and they'd repent. That was the idea. And that's what happened. Where did he get the idea? Where did Elijah come up with the idea that if God turned off the water, we might just have revival here? Pretty good idea. Where did he get it? Yes, sir, tell me where. Where did he say that? Where did God say he would chasten his people for disobedience? What we're talking about is the law of Moses, especially and specifically in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God said, I have a covenant with you when you're in the land of Canaan. I will bless you. If you're obedient to my law and you stay faithful to me, I will send you just enough sunshine, just enough rain, not too much, so that you'll have agricultural success every year, a bumper crop. You'll be wealthy and never poor. You'll be healthy and never sick. Read it, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and specifically it says this. If you're unfaithful to me and worship false gods, or if you neglect my law and break it, the first thing I'll do is I'll turn off the water. He said, I will turn your rain into dust. That's a pretty interesting metaphor. And the sky will be brass. No rain. No rain. Now here's Elijah reading that in the Bible and they've got somebody on the throne leading everybody to worship idols. And apparently, it's still raining. Why do you say that, Brother Flanders? Well, because James 5 says it stopped raining because he prayed that it would stop raining. Why would you pray for it to stop raining if it had stopped raining? And so he's reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy God says, I'll chastise my people. The first way way will be drought. There'll be no rain. And if they're unfaithful to me and break my law and worship false gods, I'll turn off the water. But it's still raining. So the man starts praying. He starts saying, dear God, you said. Dear God, you said. Did you know that you can know ahead of time sometimes what God's going to do? And it's throughout the Bible. Did you know that some of the most effective praying is when somebody finds something in the scriptures that isn't happening? In the book of Daniel, read chapter 9. It says that he read in the book of Jeremiah that after 70 years of captivity, God would send a remnant back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple and restart the worship of Jehovah. And uh, you read it, Daniel 9... He checked the calendar. It's been 70 years. God said in 70 years, a remnant will return. Wow. So what did he do? Sit back. Check the newspapers every day to see if people were being sent back. Wait, twiddle his thumbs. 
I'll bide his time. Let's see God come through. No. In Daniel 9, you know what he does? He sets himself to pray. There's the prayer right in there. That's what he was praying when he opened the windows. And he ended up in the lion's den. Remember that story? He faced Jerusalem. He said, oh God, you said, you said 70 years. The temple will be rebuilt. Now it's not happening. Bring it to pass, oh Lord. Now I've got, let me have a volunteer read a verse. Who, who's eager to do that? Run out of time here. Come on. Oh, let's have, sorry, I saw his hand. Uh, John 15, 7. Everybody can look it up if you want. It's called informed praying. By the word of God, directed by the spirit of God, sometimes I can know what God will do. So I can come to God and say, God, do this and expect it to happen. Now, like what Jesus said the night before he died on the cross, one of the things he said about praying is John 15, 7. Yes, sir, would you read that? So why don't you stand up? Seems to me like they wouldn't hear you unless you did. Now, did you hear that? If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done. So here I am, a man committed to the will of God. Abide in me means every day I live to fulfill his will. I want his will, not mine. Even in my prayer life, I'm not trying to change God's mind. I'm trying to accomplish his will. I'm committed to his will. If I abide in him and his words abide in me, I read the Bible. I go to a Bible teaching church. I memorize scripture. I meditate on it. I live in the Bible world. If I'm informed by the Bible, I can pray intelligently. And I can pray informed. And say, God, you're a God who doesn't like this. And you're a God who does do that. And you're a God who promised this. I'm standing on the promises. Now do this. That's what Elijah did. So, effective praying is righteous and informed, and it's fervent. Look at verse 18. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth brought forth her fruit. Now, it says the effectual fervent prayer, verse 16, of a righteous man availeth much. And in verse 17, it says he prayed earnestly. Now, here is that, how that came about. He's up on Mount Carmel. He says, why halt ye between two opinions? If Baal is God, follow him. If Jehovah is God, follow him. Now don't stuck, be stuck in between. What are you going to do? This wasn't a sermon. It was actually an invitation. <laughs> Never preached a sermon, but he did give an invitation. He said, now don't I can come off that middle ground and decide who is God. Then you remember he prayed and the fire fell and the people started crying out, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Go back and read it. It's quite a phenomenal story. Then he tells the king, wicked old Ahab, he says, you better head home because there's the sound of an abundance of rain. Why do you say that? Here's why. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, not only said that God would turn the rain off if the people turned their back on him, it also said that if they repented, he would send the blessings back. 
He said, if you disobey and turn your back on me, I'll turn the blessings into curses. But if you repent and turn back to me with all your heart, I'll turn those curses back into blessings. So he goes up on Mount Carmel and kneels down. There's his servant. Remember this story? He says, Lord, they repented. So now it can rain. Send the rain. That's what you said. Send the rain. Servant, go check to see if we got any rain yet. I've told the king there's the sound of an abundance of rain. So the servant goes out there and looks over uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And he comes back and he says, there's no clouds. There's nothing. Okay, what does Elijah do? He says, all right, I'm going to pray some more. Now, Lord, you said there would be rain. Now send us the rain. They repented. Now respond by sending the rain. Send the rain. Okay, check again. And the servant goes back and looks over the Mediterranean Sea. He sees, sees nothing. See, there's nothing even on Doppler radar. Nothing at all. Comes back and he says, dear God, you said, you said, you said that if we repented, you'd send the blessings back. Now, Lord, send us rain. Check again. How many times? You Bible readers, you're Sunday school people. How many times did uh, that servant go back and not see anything? How many times? Somebody knows. You're allowed to talk out loud. Yes, ma'am. It was seven times. Seven times. Now, I use my imagination. This isn't in the Bible. But I think about the fifth time that uh, servant was going... Here we go again. I'm talking about not a cloud in the sky, beautiful blue sky. But you know what he was doing? Elijah was praying fervently when he knew what God had promised to do. Fervently, earnestly, God, you said. Finally, on the seventh time, do you remember this part? He says, Joe, go check again. Okay. He goes out there and he says, well, there's nothing out. Wait a minute. Well, there is a little cloud over there. Like, do you remember the story? You'll read it today. There's a cloud like a man's hand. Remember that? And he said, get on your galoshes. Pick up your umbrella. Let's go. It's going to pour. They went down from the mountain. It was pouring rain, pouring rain. A miraculous story. Because effective praying is praying that stays there as long as God has shown you what he's going to do and prays until it happens. Now, here's the thing. The New Testament teaches by the teachings of Jesus that importunity persistence is important in prayer because it evidences faith. When you're on the ground, the Spirit of God by the Word of God has shown us That God wants to do this. That you pray for it until it happens. Or until God changes your mind. I was wrong. But I tell you, if you're not wrong, if according to the scriptures as interpreted to you by the Holy Spirit, this is what's supposed to happen, keep praying till it does. Now the fourth thing is this, and then I got to quit. Effective praying is righteous praying, informed praying, 
fervent praying and revivalistic praying. Those last two verses, 19 and 20, about a converting a sinner are really connected with what we're praying about here because Elijah's prayers got the whole nation of Israel to convert. And also because the will of God is that all men be saved. The will of God is that his church be filled with the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is read your Bible to see what the will of God is. And if you're praying about anything, that prayer ought to be connected with the broader will of God for our lives. Acts 1.8, just before he went back to heaven, Jesus said, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And the Lord Jesus left the planet saying those words. That's the will of God. The will of God is that his people, you and I, be filled with the Holy Spirit and be witnesses in our own city in the surrounding area. And that the truth of the gospel spread out to the uttermost part of the earth. That's the will of God. That's the will of God. I can get on my knees today and take Acts 1.8 and pray fervently for God to do this. You know, when I pray for revival in our world, I'm not asking God to do something as a favor to me. I'm asking God to do something that he's already told us he wants to do. Oh, God, speak to your people today all over the world. Speak to your people about yielding to you, surrendering to you, getting their lives clean from sin. Lord, send your people out to their neighborhoods and their cities all over the world. Lord, I think about the Muslim countries. I think about the Hindu countries. I think about the Far East. I think about the Native Americans. And I think about Flushing, a place living in darkness today because the light of the world has become dim. Because the people of God who gather at Trinity Baptist Church, one of my favorite places in all the world, have hardly any effect on them. Oh God, that isn't right. Oh God, would you speak to us? God, will you revive us? And do you know what? Even one person like Elijah, the faithful, the factual, fervent prayer of a righteous man who gets on the ground of what God's will is and prays until he sees it happen can change history. See, that's how it's done. Let's all bow our heads, can we? Lord, I